This episode is brought to you by Catan. This summer looks a bit different than most summers. We're staying at home for the most part, and we're finding ourselves looking for new activities to enjoy at home. Catan is a board game for three to four players, ages 10 and up, although younger kids can play with adult guidance. It is a great way to keep families engaged in off screens, even if it's just for a little while. And those opportunities are hard to come by. And it's really easy to pick up. Get Catan at catanshop.com slash mom. Listeners of our podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code mom at checkout. Offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi. Hi, this is Annie. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Okay, so a couple weeks ago, we released an episode about painful sex. And this episode that we're doing today, bad sex, is sort of a complement to that one. So go check it out if you haven't listened yet. But bad sex, we need to talk about it, Bridget. (laughs) We definitely do. Even before I dove into any of the research for this episode, just anecdotally, I had a feeling that a lot of us out there we're putting up with some bad sex and probably not being very vocal about it. And that research proved me correct. Yeah, spoiler alert. As it turns out, men and women are working off vastly different definitions of what constitutes bad sex. And because of that, it might be a disconnect when we're talking about the Me Too movement between how men and women understand it. Because... When a woman says bad sex, she is thinking of one thing and a man is thinking of something else completely different. Yeah, that's true. And I think because we don't talk about this, we have been conditioned to not really talk about these things, not speak up about these things. Neither party sort of is communicating these feelings to each other. Yeah. And before we dive into... Uh, the basics of bad sex. Uh, Shout out to listener Alexandra for sending us a link to an article from The Week about this called The Female Price of Male Pleasure, which was super helpful in putting this together. I also drunkenly brought it up at a party like a week ago, and probably everyone at the party was like, oh no, (laughs) I'm the bad sex girl at that party now. (laughs) Did it win you any suitors? You know... Somebody did ask me out after that. I'm not sure how much he was around for that discussion, though. Like, this girl knows a thing or two about bad sex. I'm get her home. <laughs> she sounds like a hoot. <laughs> okay, so let's do some basics here. If you took a poll of men versus women and you asked, what does bad sex mean? From the men, you would probably hear that it was boring or that the orgasm wasn't the best orgasm they've ever had. For women... Bad sex usually means coercion, emotional discomfort, or physical pain. That's very different. So yeah, we're already kind of working under two real, real different understandings of what bad sex is. That reminds me so much of that old that old adage on a blind date. Men are worried that their date will be ugly or unattractive or 
heavy or something, and and women are worried they're going to end up murdered, right? We have very different, we're working on very different standards. Our bar is different, we'll put it that way. Yes, very much. According to Debbie Herbernick, a professor and a researcher with the National Survey of Sexual Health and Behavior, she told the author of this article that we're talking about, Lily Loofborough, when it comes to good sex, women often mean without pain. Men often mean they had orgasms. And that's just sad. That's very sad. It is sad. Similarly, Professor Sarah McClelland, one of the few folks who has done some serious research into this, found that, quote, while women imagined the low end to include the potential for extremely negative feelings and the potential for pain, men imagined the low end to represent the potential for less satisfying sexual outcomes, but they never imagined harmful or damaging outcomes for themselves. Yeah, that just goes to show how divided this issue is, is that men aren't even, it's not even in their understanding that the sex could be painful or intensely emotionally damaging. It's just not great. Yeah, and it sort of reminds me of how in our Why Do Men Expose Themselves episode, some men don't see exposing yourself as harassment. It seems like we are working off two extremely different scales. I mean, we are. Yeah, we definitely are. I hate this, that attitude of men and women are so different. I've often thought that we're more similar, but there are some things where it just couldn't be more clear that we are, see that we experience the world differently. Yeah. And going back to our episode on women's pain, 30% of women surveyed report pain during vaginal intercourse. 70% report pain during anal intercourse and, quote, large proportions don't tell their partner. That really makes me angry because, you know, when you have sex with someone, you are kind of giving them part of your body. I mean, it's a very intimate thing, obviously. And the idea that people are experiencing pain and not speaking up. And I think why it makes me angry is because I've been there. I've been the person who will let someone do something to me sexually. And not only am I not enjoying it, I am actively in pain while it's happening. And rather than say, I don't like this, can we stop? Can we change something? Something in my brain tells me it's better to just continue to have this, not just not pleasurable, but actively unpleasant experience and not say anything. Like it makes me, it makes me angry because I think about younger Bridget who like would allow someone to do something that was, that hurt And I would just, and I would not even, that I wouldn't say anything. I'd pretend to enjoy it. Yeah. And there is some research on that about the socialization of, of women in our society that we're going to talk about a little bit more, but yeah, it's, it's more difficult than just saying like, well, you should speak up. There's more at play than that. Earlier this year, Andrew Sullivan published an article in the New York Magazine arguing that Me Too had gone too far because it ignores the biological realities of male bodies and their needs. To which Colin Dickey had an excellent Twitter thread where he rattled off a bunch of examples of sex in nature, like how the oldest male clownfish will spontaneously change sex when the dominant female dies, or how the sea hare is a hermaphrodite species that reproduces in a chain, where it is the male in one coupling and the female in another, or the male mantis (laughs) has better sex when his head is removed from the body. Quote, one of the most wondrous things about nature that it is 100% not here for your heteronormative bullshit. 
I love that the animal kingdom is basically like San Francisco in the 70s. Just <laughs> all, all kinds of get downs, headless, everything, anything. It's a cornucopia. I am such a nerd for, there were so many examples and I only listed three, but I, I almost just included all of them because I thought it was so interesting. Nature, fascinating. Agreed. But back to the human species. In our society, male biological needs are the ones that we care about, not women's. It's the one that we consider. If we're going to talk about male pleasure, then we need to start talking about female pleasure or female pain. That is usually the price women pay for male pleasure. In our Women in Pain episode, we gave example after example of studies that ignored women, or treated the female body as the same, but basically an extension of the male body? Like, it must be the same. There's no point in studying it, right? One stat we didn't mention in that episode, PubMed has 393 studies looking into dyspnearia, 43 looking into vulvodynia, and 10 into vaginismus, all conditions associated with painful sex for women, among other symptoms. Guess how many studies PubMed has on erectile dysfunction? I'm going to say it's a lot more. Almost 2,000. 1,954. And that's just so men can keep enjoying the pleasure, as opposed to women who have this, this painful sex and other like pain symptoms. Let's not study that. That's, we need to look about these men. <laughs> yeah, and also the idea that a man can pretty easily go in and get Viagra and for a woman to even just get a diagnosis for something like endometriosis or PCOS, I mean, it takes so long and you go through so many different doctors and you pay so much money. It's such a big discrepancy. It makes me really angry. Yeah. Um, and probably Viagra is in here in the U.S. covered by insurance. The average wait to get endometriosis diagnosed is 10 years and insurance companies are less likely to cover issues surrounding female bodies like birth control, for example, according to a study published in 1997 called Is Adam Worth More Than Eve? The Financial Impact of Gender Bias and the Federal Reimbursement of Gynecological Procedures, male-only surgeries were 44% more likely to get reimbursed. Oh, that's so upsetting. I can't remember who I saw tweeted this, but if you remember who it was, shout us out. But somebody was explaining on Twitter, trying just trying to get a diagnosis for endometriosis, and she wrote... I spent 10 years, got three incorrect diagnoses, and I paid thousands of dollars out of pocket for the pleasure of all of those misdiagnoses just to find out I had endometriosis. Like the amount of hoops that you jump through, the amount of money that you pay just to take care of a female body is absurd. Yeah, it's infuriating. And another infuriating thing that we're going to talk about is the way that women are socialized to hide this pain. But first, we're going to stop for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by China. The China brand provides premium disposable tableware to celebrate moments of togetherness. Yes, and right now that is more important than ever 
especially when we're all apart. So recently, I had a group and we had a, a socially distanced barbecue where the host drew out circles and chalk that were nice. six feet apart. And everyone showed up with their own chairs and beverages. And it was really convenient to have disposable products. And we we just had a, a lovely conversation. Um, it was really fun. Yeah. And I'm with the disposable products, I know that the China brand provides durable and trusted products, which I have used before that let you enjoy every moment of the get-togethers and traditional or now not. And there are classic white products that can work for any gathering or cut crystal plates and cups when you want to make something a little extra special. Disposable tableware keeps things simple and cleanup easy. Chinet products are available wherever you buy groceries, including delivery or pickup. This episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You is brought to you by HelloFresh. Get fresh pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking fun, easy, and affordable. And while we're under a quarantine, I will say HelloFresh has so many recipes. It's been wonderful because it gets me out of my rut and I'm able to try new recipes instead of my same old, same old. And they offer contactless delivery to your doorstep for easy home cooking with the family so you don't have to have those stressful meal planning and grocery store trips. Even better, HelloFresh's pre-portioned ingredients means there's less prep for you and less food waste. So if you're ready to try some of the delicious food from HelloFresh, go to hellofresh.com slash momstuff80 and use code momstuff80 to get a total of $80 off, including free shipping on your first box. That's hellofresh.com slash momstuff80 and use code momstuff80 to get a total of $80 off and free shipping on your first box. Additional restrictions apply. Please visit hellofresh.com for more details. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Okay, so yes, women, at least here in the U.S., and I would say probably in a lot of places, are socialized to hide our discomfort. We grin and bear it. We want the people we're with to have a good time. And if that comes at our expense, if that means pain, then so be it. I have a lot of friends who talk about, and not necessarily sex-related, but just like seeing their mom going so far out of their way to make sure that everyone else was happy other than themselves. And I think we do learn from that and we do internalize it. And if that does mean physical pain, then so be it. And this relates to something known as relative deprivation. When groups of disenfranchised folks, since they've been conditioned to expect less, still report experiencing the same amount of satisfaction as those better off than them. So we've normalized female sexual pain, all for the sake of male sexual pleasure, which our society treats as a right, hence the ease of obtaining Viagra versus the difficulty women face getting their pain taken seriously. Yeah. And when you think about the, the fact that we're like, when you really drill down the fact that we're talking about men's pleasure versus women's pain, I mean, we're not even having the conversation about women's sexual pleasure. What we're thinking about in terms of leveling the playing field is men should be able to feel pleasure and women should be able to not be in excruciating pain. We're not talking about men and women both experiencing sexual pleasure. We're talking about one of them not being doubled down in discomfort. Right. And, and going back to what we were talking about earlier and how right now with all of this conversation about sexual harassment and the questions of how has this been going on 
so long. Why haven't you spoken up, ladies? And all of the comments about how women are too sensitive, about how sad it is that men can't hit on ladies in a professional setting. For so long, we've only considered men at the expense of women. I'm just like at a loss. I'm so I'm getting angry. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely true. And so if I sound like I'm a stammering idiot, it's because I'm really angry and I'm almost sort of angry at society, but mostly I'm angry at myself because I think back to the early, my formative sexual years, how many of the encounters I had with, with men were scary, were coercive, were painful, were unpleasant. And I didn't know that I could speak up and say, I don't like this. I don't want this. Do this, not that. And of course, it's society. It's, 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 it's exactly what you described. It's this culture that says that women shouldn't speak up, that the man, heaven forbid, he feel like he's not a macho man while he's basically stabbing me with like dirty nails. And I'm re it's like really unpleasant. And I'm just sort of like, OK, well, this feels great. Please keep stabbing me with your dirty, unwashed, jagged fingernails. This is great. Like, who wouldn't enjoy this? And I just feel like on the one hand, I guess those encounters perhaps did help me get to where I am today. But I just look back and I wasted so much time on people who really didn't deserve to have my body. Like I look, I look back and it makes me very sad that I felt so disempowered. And I, I just wasted so much time on people who did not deserve to be intimate with me in that way because I thought I had to, because I, didn't, I did not see any other way. And it makes me really angry at myself in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I think a lot of us can relate to that. At the same time, at least in my, in my case, I didn't, it's almost like I didn't know that was an option for me. And that sounds kind of ridiculous, but it didn't even occur to me. <laughs> so it is sad. It's, it's really sad. And I hate to think that, that this is still happening and there are young people out there still, they're going to have similar experiences. Ugh. On the one hand, I do feel like if I had not had those experiences, like I feel like they were in some way helpful for my sexual understanding. One, they helped me understand that I didn't really want to spend my entire life only having sex with men because a lot of them weren't that good at it. And I probably would not have come to that realization if I had not had those unpleasant experiences. But what you just said makes me feel very sad because I do know that there are young people out there, particularly women and girls, who feel like they have to put up with things sexually that, they, that you just really do not have to put up with. Like, again, looking back, I wish I could go back to 18-year-old Bridget who was in cutoffs in North Carolina at college and say, if a guy doesn't take the time to ask you what you want, if a guy doesn't care that you are not enthusiastically into this, if a guy is not asking these basic questions about what you like and don't like, if a guy doesn't take the time to get enthusiastic consent, he does not deserve to be up in that party bedroom with you. He does not deserve it. Like find someone who does deserve it because those people exist. But don't just go along with this because you feel like you have to. You want to be cool. You want them to like you. You want to be popular, whatever. I wish I could go back to 18 year old me and be like, listen, you may feel awkward, but you are hot. And the people around you, if, if they are lucky enough for you to even look at them, that is a privilege. And if they don't know how to act, you need to kick them to the curb because I spent so much time being quiet about my pain and, and not speaking up. And I just wasted so much time feeling like I had to do that. And I really didn't. And I just, I hope this is useful for someone who's a young person out there who feels like they have to 
put on this mask. It's almost sort of related to being a cool girl because no one wants to be the person that says, yo, this is actually uncomfortable. Let me show you what will be a better way. And I think part of it is that I didn't know my own body. I didn't know that I was queer. I didn't know that what I liked because I was really disconnected from my own body. And it was just a whole mixed bag of shame and confusion and weird feelings around sex and my body that just really went unresolved for a long time. This is a rant. I'm sorry. It really makes me angry because I know that as women, part of me feels like this is just our cross to bear. And I, and I hate it. Yeah. There is some research on this that we're going to get into a little bit later. But I mean, in the United States, we don't have sex education, right? So most people, when they have sex for the first time, like have no idea what they want. And also, as a woman, you are told, hey, it's going to hurt. <laughs> That's how you enter like your, your first sexual experience, knowing this is going to be painful. That's what we tell women and girls. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later. I love this thing from the Week article where the author was talking about how if we look at straight women trying to attract straight men, these women are probably in shapewear, probably wearing high heels, probably waxed, possibly injections like Botox are involved. These are painful things. They might be depriving themselves of food, if not in general, than at a party where they're in super form-fitting dress. Men are not in this discomfort. And looking at women, you wouldn't know it because we've been trained to hide it. And I love this quote. Next time you see a woman breezily laughing in a complicated and revealing gown that requires her not to eat or drink for hours, know A, that you are witnessing the work of a consummate illusionist acting her heart out, and B, that you have been trained to see that extraordinary Oscar-worthy performance as merely routine. Oh, that is so true. Oh my gosh. It actually reminds me, when I was in New Orleans recently, I was being hit on by someone and... What's funny is that I was pretty drunk. I, I wasn't super interested. So I was like, oh, let's just have fun with this encounter and see what happens. You know, like, let me just torture this poor guy for a, a night and see what happens. And like, I was wearing a tank top and he was like, oh, you know, I noticed you don't wax. I was like, no, I don't do any of that. And his reaction, owning that I wasn't going to do things that were painful or unpleasant to lure the, att- the attention of straight men. And I basically just said that. Seeing how that was like a really surprising thing for him, he, he could not sort of wrap his head around it, made me realize we're out here putting in a lot of not just uncomfortable stuff, a lot of money into giving men, heterosexual men, this sort of fantasy. And we're pretending that it's nothing, right? Like you don't see the, the gears and the machines sort of turning in the inside. All you see is this presentation of effortless hotness. But you don't see the money that goes into that, the discomfort, you know, shapewear, waxing, lasering, this, that. And so as someone who is like, not entirely, but like largely, as I've gotten older, just opted out of that. And if you don't want to be fine, seeing how many men who are who are otherwise progressive and with it, it's like clear that they are still buying into that lie and they have not taken the time to unpack it or analyze it. Yeah. It's kind of like, um, I have a really funny memory of being on acting in this thing, and um, the director clearly had no idea of, he said, I I just want that all-natural look. And that took for for me about two hours. And the dudes, I was so mad. For them, it took like 30 seconds for us to be (laughs) natural-looking. 
I was so infuriated. They're getting to like practice their lines, rehearse, and I'm sitting there like still in hair and makeup. And this is a mindset that does not disappear when it comes to sex, right? So like when it comes to women faking orgasms, which we did touch on in our um, episode on women's pain, one of the number one reasons women gave for doing faking orgasms is to, quote, not hurt their partner's egos. And then pleasing your partner was another one. If you're in pain, you'll get the sex over with more quickly. But that's something we ignore as a society. And that same study looking into why women might be faking orgasms didn't even offer as an option that it might be pain. It was sort of like it had 20 different choices. And that wasn't one. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And since beauty is how we measure women's worth in our culture, and women are taught that how people perceive them is more important than any of their actual feelings, then yeah, it might not just be as easy as stopping sex when it's painful or leaving or telling your partner that you're in pain. There's all this other stuff tied up in it. Yeah, I actually have a very unpopular, unwoke, possibly unfeminist opinion about faking orgasms. I think orgasms are important. I think it's part of self-care, and I think that people should be having them. But if you've ever had sex with a man, you know that men sometimes don't understand all of the different things that sometimes have to go into a woman having an orgasm. And sometimes you have sex and you don't have an orgasm. And so, I I don't know, I guess what I'm saying is that sometimes it's not going to happen, and there's like nothing your partner can do that's not going to happen. And I guess in an ideal world, you'd be in a situation where you could just tell your partner, I still want to have sex, I just might not have an orgasm, so like, don't numb me out trying to give me an orgasm that's not going to happen. I guess what I'm saying is that sex, it's okay to have a sexual encounter and still enjoy it if you know you're not going to have an orgasm. And I think that for, if you're like early on with someone, if it's, if you're, if it's your first time having sex with someone, you might not have that communication where you can say, I still want to have sex. I might not have an orgasm. It will still be an enjoyable situation if we have sex. And so sometimes you can fake it and that sort of accomplishes it. And it's not ideal, obviously, but I think that sometimes it's harder to have that conversation with someone that you maybe don't know that well. Am I making sense? Like, maybe I sound like I'm saying, fake it, ladies. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that sometimes you just want to watch your shows, right? You know? No, yeah. If it's someone that you are communicative with, that you can say this and they'll understand and they'll get it, that is one thing. But maybe it's someone that you're sleeping with for the first time and you're not there yet, you know? And I think you need to acknowledge that, like, it would be great in an ideal world that you could say... You get what I'm saying, right? Am I sounding, am I making sense? I don't know. You are making sense. I think what this article was trying to focus on, and in general, like studies have been trying to get to the heart of, is that so many women are faking orgasms. Why is the number that high? And then a lot of men will say, well, why? And I think that we just don't talk about it. And looking at reasons, there are totally (laughs) a lot of reasons why women might fake it, right? But to men, it's almost like, what? Why would you do that? Don't you want to orgasm? This reminds me so much of this classic Seinfeld where Elaine admits to Jerry that she faked it during their relationship. And all the women that she talks to, of course, they've all faked it. And men, if you're listening, I think every woman has probably faked it at some point. So if you're listening, somebody's probably faked it with you. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. breaking it down for you. I'm sorry. It's just the research that you just said, if we're all out here faking it at some point, If you are a man who has sex with women, a woman somewhere has faked it with you. That's just numbers. Like by the research that we have found, it just makes sense. But so when Elaine is talking to her friends about why they fake it, their reasons are really funny, but they're all like very similar. It's like, 
if we went to the theater and he got good seats, or sometimes you just want to get some sleep. (laughs) I I had to admit, part of me identified with that. Yeah, no, I totally get it. Going back to that other thing we were talking about, about um, losing your virginity, that's another point this article drove home about how we tell women and girls that losing your virginity is going to be this painful experience. And I definitely heard that when I was young. And also, I seem to recall, it's been a long time since I've watched this show, but I seem to recall on True Blood, this was a plot point when the like the one female vampire that was young and she had long red hair, I think her name was Jessica, had sex for the first time and it hurt like hell, but she was so excited to have it again. Um, but it turned out she was forever virgin because I guess that's how vampires work. I know you brought this up because this is your side interest of horror movies, <laughs> horror TV shows, periods, loss of virginity, sex. We need to like do a whole series on this because you have a lot of thoughts. I really do. You see right through me. (laughs) I was like, I know where this is coming from, Annie. You're not slick. (laughs) Not fooling Bridget. All right. Okay. Vampires aside, in the context of this episode, if you're told from a young age that sex is going to hurt and that's normal, then that can be hard to shake. That can just become like, well, I guess if it hurts the first time, why would it not hurt the second time? And so on and so on. And we do have some research about that. But first, we're going to pause for one last break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halos. Between being on video calls all day, having to wear masks everywhere, and now using our eyes and only our eyes to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice now are our eyes. Arches and Halos is our favorite brow products that is so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, have the most amazing brows ever. They have professional quality products at the perfect price point. Celebrity makeup artists use Arches and Halos because of how well done the formulas are, and they are half the price of department store brands. They have eight color shades to choose from, everything from sunny blonde to auburn to charcoal. Everyone is represented. They cater to women and men of all brow shapes and sizes. Embrace your natural brow. And they're all about individuality. Brow tools for all looks and style needs. You can use for dramatic or natural look. They have an amazing range of products, too, from tweezers, razors, pencils, pomade, mousses, gels, all kinds of things. Find Arches and Halos on your next trip to Target and Walgreens. Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. Gotta tell you about Best Fiends. It's a game pretty much everybody's talking about. Morgan number two plays it sometimes before we start the show. You know, it really challenges your brain with the fun puzzles, but it's also a very casual game, so it won't stress you out, which is perfect these days, right? What's great is you can use the game as a way to connect with your friends and your family, all while social distancing. The game is so much more than your average mobile puzzle game. It's five-star rated with over 100 million downloads, thousands of fun levels, and tons of characters to collect. You know, there are new in-game challenges and events every month, so the game's always fresh. You'll never be bored with it. You can even play the game without using Wi-Fi. So, here we go. You don't want to miss out on the game. Join millions of Americans and a lot of us here on the show who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. Just go over there, hit download Best Fiends for free. Apple App Store or Google Play. That's Friends Without the R, Best Fiends. Check it out. I do think you'll like it. Friends Without the R, Best Fiends. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Recently, this was very fortuitous, um, a TED Talk popped up in my feed called What Young Women Believe About Their Own Sexual Pleasure. 
and this was a TED Talk by Peggy Ornstein. For three years, Ornstein interviewed women and young girls between the ages of 15 to 20 about their sexual experiences. And what she found was that while a lot of the girls she spoke to did feel entitled to sex, they didn't feel entitled to the enjoyment of it. One young woman she spoke to described herself as a loud, strong, smart feminist, that her mother and grandmother were the same, but that she'd only had a series of disappointing sexual encounters, saying... I guess we girls are just socialized to be these docile creatures who don't express our wants or needs. And when the discrepancy there was pointed out to her, the young woman said she was never taught how to translate the loud, strong, smart female thing to sex. Oh, man, I identify with that so much. I know I keep going back to 18-year-old college Bridget, but I was that loud, smart, uber-feminist girl on campus with, you know, the pro-choice poster in my dorm room and an Ani DeFranco shirt. I projected that outwardly, but when it came to sex, I just did not feel entitled to ask for what I wanted. I didn't know how. It was like I didn't have a voice. I had a voice in all the other ways, but I didn't have a voice when it came to my own sexuality and my sexual needs. Yeah, and I think a lot of young women feel that way. And Ordenstein went on to explain that if you look at the numbers, Young women these days are not engaging in more penetrative sex than their counterparts 25 years ago, but they are more likely to engage or to report, perhaps, in other things, particularly oral sex. And when asked about why they would perform oral sex, most young women responded with a sort of, eh, shrug, no big deal. Maybe they said they felt powerful. A lot of my friends in my own experience told me this, or maybe it was a social status thing, although we all know that's a double-edged sword, or to get out of an uncomfortable situation. A lot of them reported that. One respondent said, quote, a girl will give a guy a blowjob at the end of the night because she doesn't want to have sex with him and he expects to be satisfied. So if I want him to leave and I don't want anything to happen, and she trailed off. Yeah, that is sad. But again, I identify with that. But you couldn't just say, I've had a lovely time. I'll see you tomorrow. P please leave. That you're like, well, what's one blowjob in the scheme of things? You know, that's such a, I, I felt that way myself, you know, and it's a sad way to feel. And also men aren't thinking of that. Like, I don't know the numbers of this, but I guarantee that men are not giving oral sex to women at those same rates. That from a pretty young age, we're socialized that this is something that you just do, you know, for all those reasons you just listed. I'm sure that men are not being told the same thing about giving oral sex to, to women. Yes, and actually, Ornstein looked into this because, of course, here comes the shame our society has around female bodies and that so many of us women have internalized. She was trying to get to the reason women would participate in one-sided oral sex and not expect or even want that reciprocated. And the women expressed a feeling of shame around their own bodies and their genitals. And we talked about this a bit before on the show um, a long time ago, Kristen and I made a video about it, how for some women, it's so hard to turn off the shame you feel around your body that that's what you're thinking about when you're having sex. You're thinking about how unhappy you are with your own body, how ashamed you are of it, and you're not going to enjoy sex if that's what you're thinking, if the whole time you're just, if, like your skin is crawling. And I tried once to get one of my ex-boyfriends to understand this, and he could not grasp it. It made no sense to him. Yeah, that makes me 
sad, but it's so, so true. It's so true. And kind of does go back to this idea of women and the burden that we have. How can you feel your sexual best if in your mind, if you're anything like me, your mind is racing with a million anxious thoughts all the time anyway on a good day, but then add into that these like shame-filled thoughts about your own body. I remember, this is going to be one of my like TMI things, but years and years and years ago, I was dating somebody that I actually really liked. But one problem was whenever we had a sexual encounter that involved him putting his like hands on my on my genitals, did not, he had this horrible, filthy habit of not washing his hands. And so basically every time we did that, I knew I was going to get a yeast infection. Like, oh. I, I knew it. And I, you know, I was pretty young. And so I couldn't have that conversation of, did you know that bodies are delicate ecosystems? And when you put your dirty fingers that have been touching your Xbox all day inside of someone, you are actually going to risk giving them a UTI or a yeast infection. And that's actually a totally normal biological response to you putting dirty fingers inside of me. So actually, if you wash your hands thoroughly before, it would help me out. Like, I could not have that conversation at 19. So I just broke up with him. Like, <laughs> I didn't know what else to do. Um, and it sucked. Like, honestly, there are so many little things that I wish that people knew. PSA for anybody out there. If you are putting your mouth on someone's butthole, you need to rinse your mouth out with Listerine that has actual mouthwash before you put that mouth on a vagina. Otherwise, that person can get an infection and infections are not sexy. Like we don't have basic sex ed, let alone someone that is telling you how to have, you know, healthy sexual body practices. And so that just sort of gets wrapped up in a snowball of shame and we're not talking about it. And it's shame. It's lack of communication. It's women being felt to endure things that should not have to burden themselves with. It's so many bad things when sex is supposed to be good. Yeah. It makes me think of a second sitcom that I used to watch, Scrubs. And there's a joke on there where Carla said she couldn't figure out why this one patient didn't get erections when she came in, but did when every other female nurse or doctor came in. And she said to him, I can look at my body in the mirror for 10 seconds naked. That's more than most women. (laughs) I can think about that kind of relates. And more than 75% of women in college remove all of their pubic hair sometimes, and over 50% do it regularly, which is totally cool if you're doing it for yourself. But a lot of women interviewed relented that they did it because they thought dudes would be grossed out if they didn't. On top of that, the fastest growing cosmetic surgery among young teenage girls is labiaplasty, which is trimming of both the inner and outer labia. And overall, this procedure jumped 80%, 80% from 2014 to 2015. And the most popular option is called the Barbie. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's so upsetting. But also, I mean, for any listeners who are women who sleep with other women can tell you, I mean, it makes me sad that people are out here trying to get this perfect Barbie vagina There is no such thing. There are so many vaginas are snowflakes. Like no two vaginas look the same. Yeah. And what makes it worse to me is that there's no proof that it's safe. It could also cause scarring, desensitization and pain, among other things. Enough women are seeking it now for non-medical reasons, because sometimes you can need it for medical reasons. But enough people are seeking it for non-medical reasons that the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists released a statement about it saying, yeah, no proof it's safe. 
And if you're getting it for cosmetic reasons and it does cause pain and lack of sensation, you're basically risking your own sexual pleasure to project this fantasy of a perfect Barbie vagina that really doesn't exist. No. Psychologist at the University of Michigan, Sarah McClelland, uses this term when talking about everything we've discussed here, intimate justice or the political and personal aspects of sex, of who is entitled to enjoying sex, what's the scale for bad sex for each partner, and what's the scale for good sex. And through her research, McClellan found that women, far more than men, rated sex based on the pleasure of their partner. Men rated it by how good their orgasm was. So in that way, we're, we're rating the sex based on the enjoyment of someone else, of the man, probably in this case. Ornstein said of this mismatch over bad sex, quote, if a girl goes into an encounter hoping that it won't hurt, wanting to feel close to her partner and expecting him to have an orgasm, she'll be satisfied if those criteria are met. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to feel close to your partner or wanting him to be happy. And orgasm isn't the only measure of an experience. But the absence of pain... That's a very low bar for your own sexual fulfillment. Here, here, she completely encapsulated all the things I feel. You are entitled to not be in pain if you don't have to be. You know, like that, like that should be the bare minimum that you owe yourself if that's something that you can attain. Yeah. And she also talks about how less than half of teenage girls between 14 to 17 have masturbated. And here's an embarrassing fact about me. I didn't know it was possible for girls to masturbate before college. <laughs> college. I did. <laughs> well, good for you, Bridget. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's true. But like, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, I'm teasing you, but it doesn't surprise me that you didn't know because in high school, we watched the movie American Pie where Jason Biggs literally have sex with a pie while masturbating. Where is the movie about how women get off or girls get off? There isn't one. I had to figure it out on my own. When I discovered masturbation, I thought I had invented it. I was like, oh my God, the secret new thing that only I know about. We don't have a culture that tells women that they can do this. And it doesn't surprise, I'm teasing you, but it doesn't surprise me that you didn't know. Yeah. And when I was thinking about it, what, what do you think the stat is for boys 14 to 17, not knowing masturbation is a thing? I already know. Having lived with a boy 14 to 17... I already can tell you, they have figured it out. They have all figured it out. Well, and that's kind of the thing is a lot of girls are going into their first sexual encounter, maybe not having any idea what they like, have never masturbated. Whereas the boy certainly has. And in the back of your head, you're thinking that the sex isn't meant for them to enjoy, that it's supposed to hurt. That's pretty messed up. It is messed up. And it's all the more messed up that we're telling them that at, at such a young and formative age, like... Those years kind of put you on the pathway of who you become sexually. And if the message that you are receiving is that it's always going to hurt and it doesn't matter if it feels good for you or not, but it does matter if the boy is having a good time and it's always going to feel good for him. If that's what you're absorbing, that, that, that can stick with you for life. Like I know women who, when they're much, much older, have kind of figured out that they've absorbed some pretty toxic shit about their own bodies and have to do that work when they're like 50, 60, 70 to have a better relationship with their bodies. Yeah, absolutely. And Ornstein also has some data on same-sex relationships. Yay, so refreshing. In lesbian relationships, the focus on your partner's pleasure remains, but this means that both are invested both are focused on the partner's pleasure, and both are more likely to orgasm when having sex as opposed to it being one-sided. 
Also interesting, she said that lesbian and bi girls are redefining what it is to lose your virginity and the pain that hetero girls just expect and accept when it comes to the first time. There are so many ways to be intimate and even more intimate that can vary from couple to couple. And I love this. One gay respondent said she defined losing her virginity as the first time she orgasmed with a partner. And if that was the definition, a lot of us would have to rethink when, if ever, did we lose our virginity? Yeah, I hate the idea of virginity, quote, losing your virginity. I hate that. I am all for new and healthier models of what virginity, quote unquote, looks like. If our sexual milestone was not when a penis enters your vagina, if that was not our sexual milestone, what could it look like? The way that we prioritize men in terms of sexuality is really striking. Yeah, and something else that is pretty striking is this comparison Ornstein did between studies of Dutch female students and American female students. And she found that the Dutch students had more positive sexual outcomes and that a lot of the difference between the groups could be attributed to education and having someone to talk to you openly about your body and about sex. Parents of the Dutch students talked to their daughters about responsibility and joy. American parents talked about disease and pregnancy prevention. (laughs) And I love that joy aspect of it. I remember reading, I think it was an American parent describing how he had never thought to include that, that <laughs> that it, it could be a pleasurable experience perhaps and should be. So we need to teach girls and women responsibility, yes, but also that they're entitled to enjoyment and We need to even out what bad sex means for both men and women so we can have a dialogue coming from the same place and so that we can have these conversations around Me Too and we can start to unpack why women don't just leave when bad sex is going down and so that we can have better sex for everyone. Yes, I completely agree. Orgasms should be a human right. And I agree. I think that we just need to talk about these things and... You know, I went to Catholic school where no one told me that sex was supposed to be pleasurable, you know, and I I want people to know that it's supposed to feel good. It's supposed to be a good experience. Yeah, I did not get that talk either. So I hope that we can can start to move this way and have these conversations and have better education, especially here, at least in our experience, better education because I didn't. We had one all about me day in fifth grade and all it was was like... (laughs) You're going to bleed and you're going to get hair. <laughs> That's it. Um, well, going to Catholic school, we got presentations that said uh, condoms are full of holes and they oh don't my work. Gosh. So don't. So like people were like, don't use condoms. They don't work. The only thing that works is abstinence. Until I was 20, I thought that you couldn't get pregnant if, I, if you were on top. I mean, come on. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> we, yeah, we had um, abstinence only in my high school very briefly, but a lot of us... Uh, got pregnant. <laughs> a lot of us got pregnant. Well, that's true. And But a lot of us women, so they had these abstinence-only posters. We put up kind of the jokey, just use protection, but insert pun about it here, next to them all over, and they sort of gave up. So I love it. I, lo- I love the resistance. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so here's hoping for, for more of that resistance and having... If not an equal playing field when it comes to bad sex, at least an an understanding that we're saying we're talking about different things. Yes. Yes. This brings us to listener mail. Anne-Marie wrote, 
It's been a few years since my favorite series of games, The Elder Scrolls, became an online RPG game instead of a series of console storyline games. Oh, RPG is role-playing game, by the way. And I've never gotten over it. I grew up thinking that I wasn't good at any video games, with two loud boy cousins who owned consoles beating me at Mario Kart and lacking the patience to teach me first-person shooting. When I got married, however, we were gifted an Xbox, an Elder Scrolls Oblivion, and I soon found myself playing more than my husband did. I devoured the game and then Assassin's Creed when it came out. As an aside, I scoffed when I heard you quoted the Ubisoft exec who said it would be too much work to animate a woman for that franchise since they made their splash recreating ancient cities and landscapes with the varied cultures of a Crusades era occupied Jerusalem as the game centerpiece. But a woman? Whoa! The most recent games have had an okay and improving female characters to play, but they still don't feel like they've been written as thoroughly with as much depth. Back to Elder Scrolls, I absolutely loved the next game Skyrim, and it was a huge hit. When I saw a new game was coming out, I was so excited until I found that I didn't understand most of the announcement. My husband translated the acronyms, and I was really nervous. I didn't actually understand why I was so nervous about an online game until I listened to your episode about sexual harassment. I don't interact with other gamers because I am an introvert with major anxiety, a survivor of childhood sexual assault, and I spent middle and high school putting up with sexual harassment that was never punished from boys just being boys. I knew on some gut level that even though I put a lot of hours into gaming, the loudest voices in any online game would be the people who put in as Kristen and Caroline put it, a part-time job's worth of time into the game. I tried the online game, but I was playing on a Mac, and I wasn't going to invest in extra gear for one game. I wasn't willing to play in groups or get on a mic. I hated the gorgeous scenery and beautiful scenes and characters of a world I knew that they had been compromised so that the game could become an online RPG. My point is that when they made this move, Bethesda, which is the company that makes the game, left out a lot of people like me who escape into beautiful stories with dragons and elves and magic and long, winding, varied paths to the end of the plot because we need that escape. I deal with debilitating mental illness and I can't work because of the anxiety and depression caused by complex PTSD. I now play Minecraft with my five-year-old son and we have a blast. I do still enjoy the Assassin's Creed games, but I most certainly cannot afford to risk harassment of any kind by joining an online community that may turn hostile. I still get so emotional about it. I really only get this emotional otherwise about books that I love. If the next book in a series I loved were somehow unavailable to me because of a disability I had and would forever remain unavailable to me, I would perhaps feel something similar. But I would have somewhere to go to complain in that case and feel a sense that I had a right to be angry. In this case, I still feel a sense of shame that I can't, quote, get over it and be more of a joiner, even knowing that I'd potentially face harassment. Sure, they claim that the game can be played solo, but there are things that are nearly impossible to do alone. It feels like a betrayal. Yeah, I, I relate to a lot of this, and it makes me so angry that this is something we have to consider at all, that I can't do this because I'm probably going to be harassed. Like, that avenue is closed to me. This thing that was supposed to be fun that we use to escape is instead a source of stress and harassment that we will just askew rather than risk that happening. It is sad. And I think this letter really drives home that what women lose, it's not just a game. You can lose a lot. You can sacrifice a lot 
it's upsetting. And I think this letter really illustrates what's at stake. Yeah, I do too. Mel wrote, I'm listening to the Miss America episode and I have thoughts. I'm certainly glad the swimsuit and evening gowns are gone and an emphasis is being put on social service and ambition. However, I agree, and I doubt this means that women who are different sizes, shapes, ability, and gender identity will be included. Which has me wondering, why do women publicly compete for a crown and a scholarship? Why don't we have competitions where men dress nice, smile pretty, and publicly face the role to talk about serving others? Why does it seem normal for women to publicly grovel for a position or a scholarship, I guess, while there doesn't seem to be an equivalent for men, especially one that is as popular television entertainment? Who doesn't want to see a newly crowned Mr. America with tears streaming down his giddy face? Why don't we parade the, quote, ideal man across the stage? Why are there not YouTube videos of Mr. America contestants saying publicly ridiculous ditzy stuff? I know Miss America, and I know these pageants in general have their defenders. I just don't see the point in making women publicly compete in this way for entertainment. I don't see value in it. Other scholarships exist, and they don't require you to go through a gendered public judging. Uh, thank you for this letter, Mel. It's funny, I actually happen to know that male pageants do exist. They are clearly much, much, much less popular. They're much, much, much less part of our sort of cultural lexicon. Like, it's not like you little boys aren't growing up saying, I want to be Mr. World. I want to be Mr. America. But there actually is a Mr. America. There is a Mr. World. The reason why I know this is, one, because I think I mentioned I did a little bit of pageantry back in my day. But two, the current Mr. World is this really, really, really hot guy that I'm like semi-obsessed with. So I happen to know that he exists. Look him up online. He's, he's Mr. India. He's just very handsome. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> um, and But it's true, right? You know, it's much more of a public stage for the women. And the men do it, but it's kind of a niche thing. It does not have the same you know cachet at all. And what would it look like if a, we just had a society where women, where no one had to parade themselves in this way, or B, everybody did it and it was just a thing where it was just as popular for the men as, as the women, right? Like, what would that society look like? Like, what would a more equal understanding of parading yourself around in this way look like? Although I have to say that for these male competitions, the question and answer portion is trying to demonstrate whether or not they have intellect. But the questions they ask are like the questions that you would ask like a fifth grader. <laughs> so, I mean, you do, you do get some beautiful yet ditzy guys, but in no way do they get the same level of public scrutiny that the women get at all. Do they have a, a swimsuit portion? They have like a muscle. They have an evening wear portion where they're in suits and they have like a portion where they're showing off their muscles. If you want, if you're curious who the current Mr. World is, his name is Rohit Kundal. He is born in 1989, so he's a youngin. He was Mr. India 2015. He is the first Asian to ever be crowned Mr. World in 2016. And he is gorgeous. And I would marry him. He did a TED Talk once. Call me, Rohit. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm totally objectifying him. But he also seems smart and cool. So that as well. <laughs> I'll tag that on there. I love that you know this, Bridget. You've like it's made my day. It's embarrassing. I'm not a follower of male pageants. I just happened to see this guy's TED talk and I was like, he is gorgeous. Who is he? And then it took me down a rabbit hole of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it vague at stuff. <laughs> well, we'll uh, leave that to the imagination of listeners or not. Um, thanks to both of them for writing in. If you'd like to write to us, you can. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And as always, we can be found on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You and on Twitter at Mom Stuff Podcast. 
And thanks as always to our producer, Kathleen Quillian. The Gold Club was the top strip club in Atlanta in the 1990s, with patrons like Dennis Rodman, Michael Jordan, Madonna, the King of Sweden. But in 2001, the club was put on trial with charges of prostitution, extortion, credit card fraud, racketeering, and an affiliation with the mob. I'm journalist Christina Lee, and I'll be taking you behind the scenes of the Gold Club scandal, from the booty and bubbly to the deceit and courtroom drama. Listen to Racket Inside the Gold Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Amy Nelson. And I'm Sam Edis. We're the hosts of iHeart's newest podcast, What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We both have our own businesses, and between us, we have seven children. And since the moment we met, we've been sharing our stories with each other. The thing is, we all know the stories of industry titans like Bezos and Jobs, but the stories of women, they remain incomplete. We ask questions no one else even touches. We are not afraid to get personal. So listen to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.